This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 you are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? Today we will read chapter 14 of Genesis. Like most nations in history, the nations of this chapter are consumed with chasing wealth. Conflict is naturally the means by which to acquire that wealth, and that conflict will unavoidably swallow up the bystanders. But the kings who profit can't be bothered with this fact. That's the kind of story we will hear today, but as always, there is a revealing instruction present within the story, so let's not miss it. Thank you for joining us this week. Let's get started. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariak, king of Elisar, Kedolaomer, king of Elam, and Tadal, king of Goim. These kings made war with Barah, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, and Emim in Shavakiriathim, and the Horites in their country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim, with Kedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tadal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. So I know that was a big chunk of text to listen to, but I think it flows best in one run-through. So what have we heard? 
Well, for one, the text is reinforcing just how bad of an idea it was for Lot to impulsively live close to these city-states in the Jordan Valley. Wherever you have city-states, you will have kings, and wherever you have kings, you will have wars over territory. Lot is a foreigner. He is a sojourner in this land, so he really has nothing to do with the conflict, but still becomes involved, not by choice, but because he just happens to live there. Again, this is striking when we view this in light of the overarching anti-urban theme throughout scripture. Cities are made up of human social hierarchy, and human social hierarchy is a violent and ungodly arrangement. Right. We must remember that Lot had an immense amount of riches in his possession, so he would be an obvious target for those who were coming in and taking over this land. The riches are of immaterial importance. They don't matter. But it's obvious that Lot had a big target painted on his back, whether it would be the Sodomites, Gomorrahites, or any other foreign power coming in to overthrow the kingdoms he was dwelling near. Exactly, and I, I want to spend a second talking about some of the names we are presented with as the kingdoms they are representing will be key players throughout the scriptural narrative. We have the return of Shinar, which again is representative of Babylon, as that is where the Tower of Babel was being built back in Genesis 11. The next place name of obvious import is Elam, which refers to the ancient Persian Empire, but interestingly, they are scriptural Semites. But they are acting in a way contrary, obviously, to how the Semites are supposed to be as shepherds. Nations like Elam are featured in these stories, it would appear, in order to parallel Israel and Judah as they turn their back on the scriptural command and seek to exist on their own terms as cities. This becomes even more forceful with the next name listed, that being Tidal of Goyim. Goyim, that's a word that we've heard before. Again, that means nations in Hebrew, right? These are the Gentiles. It's the same word. Gentile comes from the Latin gentilis, which has the connotation of both nation and family. So this is all extremely interesting in the way that it's presented here. And again, Scripture's interest in the nations as a whole is a mark of it being an anti-epic. Epic literature of the ancient world was oftentimes meant to glorify a particular people. Even the Iliad is a cry for the unity of the Greek city-states to unify the particular Greek people. Scripture is uninterested in that. The scriptural nation is a nation that is created by God out of the chosen descendants of Abraham. But while they are chosen, they are not special. And that's the point. The interest in including the Gentiles is not an invention of the New Testament, but was firmly established by the old. It's obvious, especially when we read it in the original language. Yeah, I appreciate you pointing out the parallel here between Judah and Israel, and between Abraham and these other nations warring after each other. Scripturally speaking, there is always a nation that should be carrying the identity of God because they were established in him. But instead, they go whoring after their own ego and carnal desires, while amongst them there is a remnant who remains faithful. That is precisely the cycle or pattern we are getting here in the story. Yeah, I just I just want to interject just just for a second here. Um, I think it's really interesting too because throughout the scriptural narrative, the the tension has been with Israel wanting to be like the other nations, and consistently God is is telling the Israelites don't be like the other nations, and we're seeing exactly very early on exactly how nations operate, how they work. 
and and Abram, as we will see, is outside of that. Yeah. And so, yeah, this is uh, this is really important, and it's something to pay attention to. Right. And his decision, we will see soon in the text, his decision to avoid becoming like the nations is connected to his recognition of God's sovereignty. Right. Because the very next chapter in the in the story is Genesis chapter 15. And, and that's where we get the famous Abraham trusted God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So there's a very direct uh continuation a, a continuity uh between these two stories it's beautiful oh, yeah. stuff <laughs> remember if we are considering these events chronologically in genesis and using the genealogy of chapter 10 to the fullest extent of its depth we can easily see what's going on chapter 10 of genesis is all about showing the listener not just the scope of biblical geography but that all of the nations in the Bible are part of one family, thereby all humans are part of one family. After the flood, all humans are descended from one of Noah's three sons. As the family grows, the earth is filled. But each generation sins against God and their neighbors, starting with Ham, one of those three fathers of humankind. All three of Noah's sons were completely aware of the importance of following Yahweh. They were literally there in the boat with Noah and the other animals. So scripturally speaking, the nations that are at war in this story were not far enough removed from the flood that they would have totally forgotten the importance of following God's commandments. I mean, there's a tradition that views Amraphel, the first king mentioned in this chapter, uh, the king of Shinar, as being the same person as Nimrod from a few chapters ago, which means we were only four generations past Noah's three sons. The genealogy of chapter 10 is also expository and lays out some elements for the stories that we will soon be hearing, one of which we are hearing now in chapter 14. In that genealogy, we also get the idea that being a child of Shem is the ideal, the shepherdic living being marked by Hashem, the name, is a good thing. It calls him the father of the children of Eber, the crosser over or the passer through. Humorously, this can also mean the transgressor, but that's a story for another time. This is a nugget that the authors are putting in place so that when the concept comes up again, it sticks. It's important, which brings us back to this chapter. What's important to notice here is the identities of the nations that are at war. They are split up into a group of four and a group of five. In the group of four, we have Elam and Shinar. Those are the two names of the regions, nations, geographical areas, what have you. These are the only two names that come from chapter 10. Elam was not just a Shemite, but was the firstborn of Shem, and should therefore be like his father out of all of Shem's sons and maintain an obedience to God displayed by Shem's participation in being preserved in the flood story. But Eber and Abram, by extension, actually come through the youngest son of Shem not the firstborn. This is an important theme to point out because we will see it come up again throughout the Bible that the youngest child, the smallest one, the most humble, gets the inheritance of the firstborn because the firstborn normally is disobedient. Next, Shinar is not actually a person, but a region that was said to be under the rule of Nimrod, the first mighty man on the earth. Uh, and this is probably what influenced the tradition I mentioned a moment ago that says Nimrod and Amraphel are the same king, or are at least connected dynastically. 
Perhaps they are play on words to critique the names found in Babylonian kings' lists or their cities, uh, which is a practice very common to the biblical authors, with Beelzebul being the most famous. If you don't know the story of that one, I recommend you look it up. It's pretty funny. Looking at the names of these kings and lands in detail is extremely insightful because it helps us understand the broader story and implications of what we are being told. And I hope to have just given you a taste of it, uh, and I don't want to spend all of our time picking apart every name uh, because I don't think it's super important for this story. I think it provides an extra layer of understanding, but these names are complicated enough that if we were to do it, the episode would end up being hours long, and I don't think anybody wants that. So instead... I will leave a link to a chart in the show notes that lays out some important connections and helps organize the information in the story in a really helpful way. In this chart, I explain the meaning of the various names and regions that the authors assign to the kings and regions, as well as connect the dots of the story due to the oratory nature of the text, making it a bit hard to keep track of everything. Regardless of all that, it's very impressive that in this story, the authors are showing us the quick descent of man once again delving into war, and pointless conflict. So next we hear about the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. Obviously, we all know what happens with these two cities, but their names are functional, right? Surprise, surprise. Sodom refers to a burnt place, and Gomorrah ultimately comes from the Hebrew root Amar. Now this is Amar with an Ain at the beginning, not an Aleph. Those are two different words. Amar with an Aleph means to say like Yomer Elohim, and God said. Amar with an Ayn means either a heap of ruins, similar to I, or it can mean to chastise. In Arabic, the same root literally means rancor or enmity. Again, not that we absolutely need to know this, since the function of these two cities is clear, even in English. It's just vitally important to remind our listeners and ourselves that in Hebrew, nearly everything is functional, and we need to always take that seriously. Yeah, and it's even more clear when you look at the name of the kings of those two cities. The king of Sodom is Bara, which means in evil. And the king of Gomorrah is Birsha, which means in wickedness. Next, very interestingly, we have a mention of Adma, which is identical in Hebrew to the ground, the Adama. And then we have the Zeboim, which has the connotation of gazelles, hyenas, or even goats at times. So you have the king of the ground and the king of the gazelles. So this sounds similar to a shepherdic reality. We then have a place called Bela, which shares a similarity to Balal, the word for confusion, thus signaling perhaps a connection to the Tower of Babel. Again, these are ultimately different roots, but the words have similar meanings and spelling, so the connotation appears deliberate. Yeah, I think the shepherd imagery is potentially communicating the culture of these cities, uh, which, you know, obviously to the original hearers um, would have been more easily identifiable to us. Some of these details are lost on us today. Um, maybe the ground and the gazelle are the local chief deities of those kingdoms or, you know, just something they had an abundance of. If you look at that chart that I mentioned earlier, I actually draw a really interesting connection between all of the five cities, Sodom, Gomorrah, and the other three, um, as all being connected to Beit Shan, which is a 
village that is fruitful in wheat production and other grains. Uh, in fact, it was one of the only, if not the only, valley uh, in this entire region that was able to produce fruit. So it could be that all these localities and all these references in the Hebrew are connecting it to one centralized area that would have been obvious to the original hearers. Another important detail to recognize is that all of these cities and nations under Sodom and Gomorrah are Canaanite cities or tribes or people, uh, which plays a very interesting thematic uh, role as it foreshadows later parts of scripture that we're probably more familiar with, but more on that in a minute. So not only are the five kingdoms mentioned all Canaanite cities, but in verse 5 we are told that some tribes some tribes of giants, which are all indigenous Canaanite tribes, uh, are being taken over by the four, the group of four kingdoms. How do I know that these are all giant tribes? Well, this view is held in many traditions. In fact, the Rephaim specifically are widely understood to be giants described elsewhere in Scripture as the tall, mighty inhabitants of Canaan. Some people say that the word in Scripture has two distinct uses. One is to describe these tall, giant people, and the other is to allude to the departed souls of the living as they exist in Sheol. However, when you look at the Semitic etymology of the word, it becomes really difficult to argue that the authors thought of these concepts as completely unrelated. They could have used a different word, after all. The word in Hebrew is potentially related to the Ugaritic rapum, which our deceased ancestors that have been deified. There also is a potentially related Akkadian word, rabu, which means a prince. The Hebrew root itself is from one or both of two roots pronounced rafa. One spelling means to relax, in the sense of something being without movement, ergo relaxing, sinking, falling, deflating, or becoming limp which in the context of them being departed souls could allude to the idea of the souls existing in a sunken state in the underworld in a sort of limbo. The other spelling means to heal, and likewise could allude to the healing of departed souls in Sheol. Speculation aside, it is clear from this specific text that the Rephaim are the inhabitants of Canaan, and that is corroborated later in the story. The other names of tribes, such as the Zuzim and the Emim, are actually just regional words for the Rephaim. The term Horites is evocative of a cave dweller. Amalekites may mean laborers, and the Amorites may mean those who speak, or those of prominence, as more of an idiomatic idea. Again, if you want more insight into these specific translations and how they all connect, I suggest you go check out that chart. And why is all of this information important for the authors to give us? Well, the Hamites and the Semites are interestingly united despite the fact that they will be opposed to each other later in the story, what with the Israelites being taken into Babylonian captivity. I know these are different stories, but the connection is obvious. The Semites, Abram's immediate kinsmen, are united with the Hamites, who are also his kinsmen, according to chapter 10. But they are united under the flimsy union of waging war against other nations for no good reason other than acquiring wealth. They are leading a conquest across Canaan to take the spoils of war for themselves. Who else in scripture dispossesses the Canaanites and takes the spoils for themselves only to be cursed by God? The Israelites. This is so important to understand because we will soon see that Abram was equally capable of joining the war effort and adding even more possessions to his house after his involvement in saving Lot. 
But he doesn't, thank God. And in verse 13, we will hear exactly what Abram is and who he is and how it is indicative of the behavior he has chosen. Then the one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Honor. These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kador Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, which is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let honor, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. This next section is extremely important, so it's imperative that we listen intently. We have a mention of a man coming to Abram the Hebrew, that is Abram the Crosser, who is living in the oaks of Mamre the Amorite. Okay, stop there. We heard of Mamre in the previous chapter, but now we are hearing of Mamre the Amorite. Again, this is another Gentile land. How can God give land that is already occupied as an inheritance to Abram? Because only God owns the land, and the names here are obviously functional. We talked last time about how Hebron was evocative of shepherdic fraternity, but the words Mamre and Amorite are potentially evocative of the call of the shepherd. At least Amorite does. Amorite is constructed from the root Amar, which means to say something. Mamre is also really interesting. Most sources I've seen ties it to a root meaning to rebel. This makes a lot of sense. God gives the land of the Amorites, including Abram's dwelling in Mamre, as well as the other Canaanite tribes to the Israelites because of the rebellion of those tribes. And as Israel rebels, they too lose the land. So I can see how this functional name serves as a warning to the audience. But I also can't help but notice a striking similarity with the Aramaic word memra, which is also from the Semitic root amar, to say. Yes, this may be a stretch, but given Father Paul's thesis that scriptural Hebrew was concocted with Aramaic as its source, it's not too far-fetched, and it works functionally with the Amorite appellation. Now, Memra is spelled a little bit differently, yes, but with the different languages in mind, this 
could possibly be incidental. It's just an interesting thought. No one needs to endorse it or anything, but I just thought I would share that. Yeah, it also bears a striking similarity to the Aramaic mar-e for lord. It comes from the Aramaic root word mara and has a connotation of domineering. So I'd wager that the Hebrew usage of mara, meaning to rebel or be filthy, is weighed over against the Aramaic word for lord, alluding to the fact that the lords or masters of the earth are all rebellious to the one true proprietor, Yahweh. It's a theme that we see over and over again if you start to study scriptural Hebrew and the content of the stories uh, and what's happening in the stories of the Old Testament through the lens of Hebrew. It becomes really clear uh, and undeniable that the authors are taking aspects of the culture that they live in, uh, however old you want to say that culture is, is another conversation, but they're taking cultural phenomenon and making commentary on it by the way that they manipulate the language itself. And again, you don't even have to subscribe to Father Paul Tarazi's thesis to see that. Uh, it's, it's pretty clear if you're just being honest with yourself. It's also worth noting that Mamre, Eshkol, and Honor were in covenant with Abram. This is important because these three individuals were, as you guessed it, Gentiles. The emphasis on Amar with the Amorites could signal that it was by what was spoken by God that these individuals are allied for this purpose. Abram in this passage is a representation of peace, which is quite interesting because the next thing we hear about is of him putting a military force together and fighting to save his kinsman Lot. This is looking forward to Israel's conquest of Canaan, which really isn't a conquest because it is God who delivers their enemies over to them. And the same is true for Abram, as was heard in this passage. The introduction of the place named Dan is important because that's the word that means to judge. So Abram's victory here is judgment against his enemies, but it's God's judgment. We can't fall into the trap of assuming Abram is the good guy here. We can't forget about Abram tripping over his own shoelaces in the previous chapter, nor can we ignore the mistakes that he will make later on. This is very clear early on in his career, so to speak. God is the only good guy, and it is by God's will that his enemies were delivered to him by God's judgment. So how can Abram be representative of peace when he has just engaged in a violent activity to save Lot. Well, we have to understand the Semitic concept of peace. In Hebrew, the word for peace is shalom. It's probably the most famous Hebrew word. Shalom derives from the root word shalom, which means a completion or a point where everything has made right. It also means to rectify or to make amends. Listen to the resolution at the end of the chapter. The king of Sodom offers to Abram the spoils of the war, but Abram refuses to take anything extra and emphasizes the importance of letting his Gentile allies have their share. Abram has no intention of being made rich by this conflict. Thus, he solves the problem. It's over. He has made peace. And that's the Semitic peacemaking, solving a problem. We Hellenists like to philosophize, especially on matters pertaining to war and peace, but to a Semite, it's completely practical. 
Either a problem is solved or it isn't. As Father Paul would say, it's very impressive. And this segues us into the meat and potatoes of this passage, which is the king of peace, the priest of El Elyon by the name of Melchizedek. My king is just or right or righteous or fair. There's a lot of ways to translate that. But this is a king who has a righteous king. In other words, he's more of a vassal functionally. He has a master. In no way is he sovereign. He is also a priest, which wasn't uncommon in the ancient world due to the palace temple complex. But the striking thing about this priest king is that he doesn't operate in a city or a temple. He is literally a priest without a temple who travels to Abram to break bread with him because he knows by virtue of his function and behavior that the true palace temple complex is not of this world. Therefore, what temple could contain Melchizedek's God? This is the type of kingly priesthood that Jesus demonstrates in the New Testament. St. Paul aptly calls Jesus' priesthood a priesthood in the order of Melchizedek, a priest king without a temple or a palace who answers only to the scriptural God, his authority, and only father. This text is extremely baffling for its time, but I think it's still baffling for us today, mainly because we misunderstand it. And this is the problem with theology, that it hyper-focuses on aspects of texts which need to be seen within the whole of their parts. Melchizedek doesn't just appear out of nowhere. He, he appears to bless Abram to his God as a response to Abram's making of peace. It shows us that Abram's God is not the God of Abram's family or of only a geographic reality. Jerusalem hasn't even been mentioned here once. Only Hebron, which once again was David's original headquarters. No, God is God of all peoples and of all nations, and thus his priest. Melchizedek is not anchored by a city or temple, but by God alone. He is a wandering priest king, a servant of El Elyon. That word Elyon means like in the highest. He is, he is God above everything else, other gods, kings, anything. And it, it, it seems rather ridiculous, but, but there it is. You can't control God no matter how hard you try. That's the scandal. Today, our problem is not so much the literal temple. The Jews don't have one. And while liturgical Christians on different levels believe in a real presence of the Eucharist, the presence can be anywhere in the world, wherever canonically consecrated. And Protestant Christians, by and large, wouldn't subscribe to God being specially in a physical medium at all. Again, we don't have an issue with the absence of a temple. No, the problem these days is the temple of our minds. We create our own God, whether we like to admit it or not. For so many of us, God is our imaginary friend. He guides us through every life decision. Should I buy this car or that car? Should I apply for this job or that job? Should I date this woman or that woman? Guys, come on. You're talking to yourself when you do this. And people like to say, oh, I felt God was leading me towards X, Y, Z thing. No, God is not your imaginary friend. God doesn't care what car you have or what job you have or who you're dating. He just doesn't. 
The only relationship you can have with this scriptural God is when you obey the words of the written text of scripture. Why? Because that's a God you can't imagine. That's a God you aren't creating yourself. That's a God who has already said everything that needs to be said for all generations. He isn't going to give you anything else. It's, it's all there in the 70 plus books of the scriptural canon. So God does not live in your thoughts. He lives in the text. We've got to understand that and shed our platonic sensibilities, which want us so desperately to be our own gods. Even if we don't outright say it, that's what we're really doing, and it's silly. And how fitting is it that in English, the sides of our heads are called our temples? That's quite funny. But in this instance, man, is it true? And I want to make it clear that I by no means am saying that we shouldn't pray or have any kind of relationship with, with God in that way. We should pray unceasingly, as St. Paul tells us. But when we pray, we need only ask for God's mercy, because what else can we really say? God already knows what we need, so we lose time if we're just droning on and on and on and on. If there's one thing that's incredibly difficult for us to hear in the Minor Prophets, it's that God doesn't care about our creative and lofty prayers. He doesn't care about our beautiful hymns or the sweet-smelling incense. He only cares that we do His will. It may hurt our ego to know that, but the quality of our oration is never going to make God hear us more. It's just not. So let us be like Abram, and let us be like Melchizedek, in that we seek to free ourselves from the temples we have constructed to contain the God that we have created in order to submit to the text, and by extension, to the only functional scriptural God. And in order to do that, we have to stop thinking and start obeying the text. It's that simple. Once we've established that, it really leaves no room for theology. How could it? The only thing that matters is the dabar, that is, katub, in the sefer. This is the scriptural proposition. It is dismantling everything you have built, even your very thoughts, in order to impose upon you what God built. It's right there in the writings of St. Paul. One of the most poignant is his letter to the Hebrews. So let's hear that. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now that's powerful. And that is precisely the behavior Abram displays here. Again, he is in no way perfect but we are finally seeing him give us a positive example of obedience. Melchizedek blesses him in the name of God Most High, declaring that it was this God that delivered the enemies into Abram's hand. Abram understands the implications of that and gives a tenth of everything to Melchizedek. The king of Sodom then tells Abram to keep the remainder of the goods, but Abram recognizes what has just happened. And he says that he won't be keeping anything because he has lifted his hand to God Most High. 
and that all the goods are to be dispersed fairly to Sodom, Honor, Eshkol, and Mamre. Abram isn't keeping all the riches for himself like he did in Egypt. He is starting to get it. When you obey God and God works in your favor, you aren't meant to profit from it if it means the misfortune of others. You cannot raise one hand to bless God and withhold the other from your neighbor. This is the absolute maxim of the biblical message. Abram gets it. I pray we do too, dear brothers, sisters, and siblings. See you next week. Hallelujah.